Is this going to be problematic, Daryl? I'm looking at the sound booth trying to figure out whether or not I need to move back up on the stage. I don't know, Daryl. You tell me. It's got a bit of a ring. Preston says it's good. That's all that really matters. Good morning. It's hard to believe we are on the last Sunday of January already. I choose to start here at this level, maybe even finish, because this morning we're going to tackle a passage of Scripture which, quite frankly, broaches an uncomfortable subject. But sometimes, uncomfortable subjects have to be grabbed by the horns and wrestled to the ground like a wayward bull. To truly be a church that believes and preaches the Word of God, you cannot cherry-pick the passages you want to preach. You cannot decide this one is too controversial, this one doesn't fit our plan, this one doesn't match what we believe. Because if what you believe doesn't match what's written in the Word of God, then you need to have one of two choices. One is to change the Word of God, or the other is to change what you believe. Frankly, I won't be in a church that changes the Word of God. So if you have a problem with what it says, maybe the problem's on your end. We live in a society that is inundated, absolutely floundering. with the subject of our passage this morning. And I have, I'm going to try here. There we go. Nope, that ain't it. Well, I probably didn't tell you where to put it, did I, Daryl? I'd like uh, the Second Timothy passage, if I may. There we go. The reason we're going to tackle this subject this morning is, is because I believe firmly exactly what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. And all of you Awana kids should know this because I am absolutely certain this is one of your Awana verses. Am I right? Awana leaders, Awana kids, uh, Awana people that were kids that are now adults. Daryl, I'm going to go back up on the stage. We're getting a lot of ring. That's a shame. I really liked being down there, too. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Ed. You know, you can always count on someone to give you that extra vote of confidence. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, Every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, which is in righteousness. There's not a page in scripture that's not meant for us to explore. There's not a thought in scripture that's not for us to explore. There's not a passage in scripture that is meant for us to be ignoring. Everything that is in the Word of God is there for a particular reason. It is for our edification. It is for our instruction. And sometimes there's passages of scriptures which will take you outside to the woodshed and wear you out. Anybody ever had that experience? Anybody ever had a passage of scripture absolutely take you to the woodshed and you've had to fall on your face and say, God, I just plain missed it. I did not do what you have commanded me to do. 
the subject matter making you uncomfortable this morning, and frankly it shouldn't, you should not be uncomfortable with this subject. We're addressing a sin that's played out in every corner of our country, if not in the world. The young people in this room, by that I mean anybody under the age of 70, you are being bombarded with this concept in your school. You're being bombarded on TV. I have a, Tony and I have six granddaughters, and uh, they're all the smartest, prettiest kids you've ever seen. Even prettier and smarter than anybody else's. Probably the prettiest and smartest kids that ever lived. <laughs> not, not that I'm biased or anything. But one of them, I was asking her what she was watching, and then I asked her what she'd been reading. And she was telling me this book she read, and she said right in the middle of it, there's a bunch of gay stuff. So I stopped reading it. She's 12, sixth grade. So it's everywhere. We're talking about the subject of homosexuality this morning. It is not an alternative lifestyle. It is not something to be lauded. It is not something to be praised. It is not something that God has made them that way. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The absolute truth of Scripture is that God made man and God made woman for a specific reason. Men, you have one less rib than your, your female counterpart. Frankly, I think it was the best investment ever made. I think when God created the woman, it was his finest creative act. They are strong, yet they are weak. They are naive, yet they are brilliant. They are absolutely fragile, but I defy you to show me anything stronger. I am in, I am in awe of the ladies in my life, all of them. God made man and woman for a specific reason. He made them that way because they are complementary to each other. They are made that way so that he is glorified in what becomes of their union. Yeah, I know that's pretty uncomfortable stuff to say, Paul. I know most people don't want to talk like that in church, but frankly, you should be. Don't you teach your children about money? How many of you here give your kid the lecture about money? How many of you have got a teenager that doesn't know a dollar they can't spend? Okay. <laughs> That's funny. I've seen some pretty interesting hands go up, and all of the, all of the teenagers went. <laughs> How many of you would admit that you have more fun than your money allows? How many of you would admit that often you go paycheck to paycheck? You know what? I have said it publicly before. Money's just a thing. Just a thing. But you talk to your kids about money. How many of you talk to your children and talk to each other about careers and jobs. Do you want to go to college? What are you going to be when you get out? You know, if you ask a 12-year-old, you say, hey, 12-year-old, what do you want to become? And they say, a dentist. You probably should run for the hills, okay? We talk to our children about what they want to become. We talk to them about the things that are important, about what time to be in, what time to not be in, who to hang around with, who not to hang around with, what to do with your cell phone, what to say, what to see, movies, and all those things. 
But when it comes to the subject of talking to them about human sexuality, we all turn just white as a ghost and we walk away. Why would you not instruct your children in the one thing that the world's going to try to pervert? Please, parents, address the issue with your children. They need to hear from you. They need to hear from God's word. The idea of a man and a woman started back in the book of Genesis. God created woman from man, and he put the two together. And the reason he put the two together was because the woman was to help me for the man. Frankly, I would be lost without my wife. She keeps me together. She tells me where to go, when I need to be there, what we're going to do. And I like that. I need that. She completes me emotionally. She is my physical companion. And frankly, I, I still dig her. You know, those of you that are in your 60s and 70s know exactly what that means. God has chosen to put man and woman together. Another reason he put us together is for the furtherance of the human race. God created man and woman. A biblically satisfied marital union has the ability to reproduce itself in children. Whether or not that couple has children or not, isn't the point. The mechanics are there to do it. I have known couples that were married for years that God never allowed them to have children. And they never found out why because they didn't want to blame the other one, but they just figured it was God's will. But the mechanical aspects there of their biology made it possible potentially for them to have children. That's the picture God has of a sexual relationship between a man and his wife not man and man or woman and woman, because those two cannot reproduce in and of themselves in the form of another human life. Okay? There's, there's no other way to explain it. There's no other way to make it true to Scripture. Let me answer this question before we go any further. Are same-sex relationships a sin? Daryl, how about, uh, let's see if I can do it. I'm not very good with this thing. Um, yeah, Romans 1, 26 and 27, for this cause God gave them up into a vile passions. For their women changed the natural use of that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burning their lust towards another, men with men working unseemliness and, re and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was due. That's pretty uncomfortable, isn't it? be honest, it's pretty uncomfortable to say in front of all of you, because we all know exactly what we're talking about, but God has said this is wrong. He has said these kind of relationships are wrong. He's called it sin. He's called it error. It's wrong. So when we get to this point, we need to address it accordingly. And then 1 Corinthians, boy, this thing's forever slow. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Or know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor idolaters, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with men. The word effeminate there is terribly offensive. It means a young male kept for the purpose of homosexuality. God addresses the issue. God speaks to the issue at hand. 
There is nothing going on in our world that God's word does not speak to. So let it speak to you today. Let it dwell in your heart. Let it find its peace in your, in your mind. Let it change or shape the way you think. I still want to tell you one more thing before we get into our passage. No person in this room has the right to hate a homosexual or a lesbian. You have no right. Jesus never hated anyone. If you stand as a child of God and claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the only thing you are commanded to do is love. You don't have to embrace. You don't have to, to take it on as part of your lifestyle or mindset, but you are not allowed to hate. You can hate the sin, but love the sinner. Same thing with alcoholics. You may hate the sin of alcoholism, but you don't have the right to hate the alcoholic. Okay? And it's easy to hate people doing things you don't like, but God has commanded us to love. They're all human. They're all cracked little pots. They're all damaged good. All of us are born with a sin nature, and frankly, none of us are above any sin listed in the Bible. Inside of us is the potential for every one of us to be a homosexual or a murderer or a liar or a thief or any other sin you can think of. All lies within you, and the only thing that keeps you from becoming that is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's the power that keeps you from becoming like the rest of the world. If the world fits, you're the wrong size. Allow the Holy Spirit to come and dwell within you as he does. And let him teach you how to love people that are doing things that you abhor. Because God loved us while we were at our very worst. And sent his son, his very best, to die for the very worst. That's the picture this morning I want to have in your heart as we explore the destruction of Sodom. Turn with me to Genesis 19 this morning. There's 29 verses. Daryl, I'm going to let you do it because this thing's just oppressed and this thing's just... Might as well just throw that out the window. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Genesis 19, 1 through 29. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When he saw them... He rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly saying, so pressed them strongly saying, they turned aside to him, entered his house, and he made a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let, them let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, or an alien, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. 
And they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and he drew near, they knew, drew near to break down the door. The men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck them with blindness, the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of that place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed, but it seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in my saving faith, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to. It is a little one. Let me escape there. It is not a little one, and my life will be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor. Also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when the lot came to Zor. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew the cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Abraham went in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And when he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a furnace. And so it was, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let's pray. Father God, more than anything else this morning, I need your guidance. I need your insights. I need your peace. We need to hear from you. Please open your word to us this morning. Put aside these stammering and stuttering lips. Forgive me of where I have failed you, both knowingly and unknowingly. Allow this vessel to be used for your glory and your honor, so that these vessels may do the same. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Verses 1 through 11, we see the actors, if you will. You know, I, I learned that from watching TV now. People that are involved with events aren't necessarily called individuals. They're called actors. They all play a part in the game, apparently. The two angels that came to Sodom, they showed up, and there was a real sense of urgency in this passage. As you read through the first three verses, you'll see, or the first few verses, that a meal of unleavened bread is made. This is a quickly makeable meal. It's something to be thrown together. Compare that to what Lot did, or Abraham did for the angels just a few, um, just the last chapter. 
Um, that was a, a protracted meal. They went and they got an animal and they slaughtered the animal and they cooked the animal and they prepared the bread and they made these things and they had curd and, and they had all these things. They had a nice meal and they sat down very leisurely and they had a meal, Abraham and the two angels and of course the pre-incarnate Christ were all there together. And this is a much different picture. This is the one that, that they've run together. They're trying to get this done. If you will, it's very reminiscent of what happens at the Passover when they eat unleavened bread and bitter herbs because they're in a hurry and they know something's about to happen. And then in verse 3, we see the protection of these angels. Lots implores these men with them to stay with him that night. Now, you think to yourself, why is that so important? Well, apparently, apparently the act of violating male strangers in the city was a common practice. This isn't a one-off incident. This isn't something that just happened. This was a pattern that the men of Sodom had developed that was known throughout the land. Why else would Lot have said, no, it is not safe, come spend the night in my, my house? If he did not know these men were in great danger by staying in the open all night. This isn't just an extension of hospitality. This is a cry to let me protect you let me watch over you. Let, me, you. let me offer you my home as a form of protection. We talk about the wickedness of Sodom, and later on we see it in all its gory details, but this is one of those threads that you cannot miss. This is a pattern. This is the way they did business. This is the way their world was. These men were truly wicked to the core. I can think of no greater fear than being in the town square and having this many people come after me, knowing that it would probably result not only in my severe physical injury, but also in the, the desecration of my body and possibly even the loss of my life. Lot extends to these men the protection of his home. Then in verses 7 through 10, notice before they ate, they sat down to eat, I don't know about you, but the idea of eating unleavened bread, I've, I've had what we used to serve for um, communion, and that's about the most unpleasant tasting stuff I ever put in my mouth. It makes those little pre-filled cups of stuff we used during the pandemic. Anybody remember those? Little pre, with the little wafer and that nasty fluid, whatever was in there, antifreeze or whatever it was. That's some of the nastiest taste. I mean, I just, you know, if that's all there was on the face of the earth, I'd die of hunger because they were that bad. And, and I pretty much compare that to unleavened bread. Uh, unleavened bread to me is a tasteless, crunchy, just, it, it's just, yeah, yuck. I think I'd rather eat Spam and anchovies. Oh. So the meal is served, and outside, outside the crowd begins to swell. They come and they surround the house. And Scripture says very clearly in verse 7, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house with young and old, all the people from every quarter. This isn't a question of living in a bad neighborhood. This isn't a question of just, you know, oh, you live here when you should live there. Don't you know these people do that? This isn't, this isn't Upper Arlington versus Bexley versus Gehanna versus West Jeff or any other city. 
Utica, this is, this is citywide. This behavior is throughout the entire city. Scripture says all the men from every quarter, they came. And they came for one purpose. That was to take the angels and to perform acts of incivility, of sin, of sodomy on these men. Yes, I said the word sodomy. I want you to understand that is the violent, unprovoked attack sexually of a man by another man. That's where the term comes from. Okay. So he says, you know, they come. He's trying to protect them. They're in his home. They've surrounded the house. And anybody that tells you that this passage says that they didn't want to have sex when they said they just want to get to know them in verse 5, it says, where are them that we may have relations with them? If they tell you they just wanted to get to know them, it's a lie from the pit of hell. Because you can get to know somebody without surrounding the house in the middle of the night. You could have met them on the street. You could have met them anywhere else. You could have met them in the morning. You don't have to go to their house in the middle of the night. The word says they came to have carnal knowledge with them. And then verses 8 and 9, this is the most unusual and offensive offer I've ever read. Lot offers his virgin daughters to the mob. Can you imagine the daughters? How many of you here had daughters? I had one. I cannot imagine doing that offer. And then secondly, I cannot imagine what the daughters are thinking. What, Dad? Have you lost your mind? What do you mean, take my daughters? You've spent your whole life protecting me. How can you offer me to these men? But there's a, a side to this that we don't get by just reading. We have to do some research. First off, when Lot entered or asked those men, the angels, to come and spend time in his house that night, he was extending to them an oriental custom of provision and protection. Their custom was that he would provide them with, perfect, with protection, even to the point of the loss of his life and his family's life. He was bound by that custom to protect them, even if it meant his own life. So he just didn't invite him in out of the rain. When he brought him in, he knew the responsibilities he was taking on. Okay? We don't do that now. If somebody comes to my house and I invite you in, and somebody shows up with a gun and wants you outside, mm, it's been nice should do this again sometime. I suppose if it's family, you might, you might defend them, but if it's somebody you're not real crazy about, you know. The second part of this is, notice his daughters are virgins. Another unpopular subject in Christianity anymore. Notice they're virgins. And what you don't understand is, obviously, Lot knew that these men were all homosexuals and they wouldn't be enticed by the presence of these two young ladies. Think about it. Offer them something they do not want. There's another side to that. In Mesopotamian law, these girls were betrothed, if you will, to young men who apparently were part of this group. They may have been bisexual. They may have... Uh, it may have been just a marriage of, of convenience. You know, we pick somebody out of the crowd, we think will make you at least a, a decent home to live in. But these men were all homosexuals, and in Mesopotamian law, to violate the virgin betrothed of another man 
meant you received the death penalty. Changes the game quite a bit, don't it? If you know by taking the offering that he has given you that you are going to put to death, chances are you're not going to take him up on it. So they're really mad at him. They call him, ask him if he's become a judge over them, which means and tells you that quite frankly, that Lot has not been doing his job of telling people about God and his righteousness. Lot has lived in the valley. He started with Abraham and he looked up from the hillside and he looked down the way and he saw the valley there by the Jordan and he said, I want to go there and live there because the grass is green and it's very fertile. There's, I can have the best of the best. And then he saw the city. And in the next passage, uh, Genesis 13 or 14, he says, look, I'm going to live close to the city, not just in the valley, close to the city. And then here we see him where? Living in the city. It's not like sin in your life, don't it? You see something you want, you know it's probably not right, but you've looked at it, you've stared at it, you've desired it, you've thought about it, and then the next thing you know, you're kind of, kind of curling up next to it. I'm not, not really going to touch it, but I'm going to get them really close to it, and uh, I can see what's going on, and I, I can be a part of the jam, what's happening here, and uh, well, I'm not really part of it. I'm kind of on the edge. And then pretty soon, you're knee-deep in the swamp. That's what's happened to Lot. So when Lot provided the offer of his daughters, he reached a point of deprivation that really is quite frightening. But not to be outdone, God outworks these guys. And in verse 11, I'll read it for you. God struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, and they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. 2 Kings 6.18 has a passage in it that talks about this same kind of blindness. And this isn't, this isn't, I'm going to be pointed here, this isn't total blindness. This isn't, this isn't Stevie Wonder blind, where there, there's nothing. And I don't mean that to be disparaging towards Stevie Wonder, okay? I don't mean that towards anybody, but it's an idea that Instead of seeing solid black, these guys were still capable of seeing, but it's a mental confusion because what they're looking at is not what they're seeing. Okay? They would wander around, their eyesight was changed, their mental ability was changed, they couldn't really fathom what they were seeing. You know, they might be looking at a doorway, but it looks like a tree, and God has allowed their brains to just become scrambled for a short time to the point where literally they spend the, the time trying to find the door of the house to the point where they're worn out. I would imagine a man who was just physically blind would have eventually found the door without a whole lot of trouble. Probably reached around and crawled around until he got to it. God blinded these two, these men, so that he could get Lot back in the house and Lot could eventually do what he needs to do. Okay? There's more to this story than just the fire and brimstone. In verses 12 and 13, the angels say, then the men said to Lot, whom else of you have here, a son-in-law and your sons and your daughters, whomever you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. When God sets it on his heart because of sin to destroy something, he will not be deterred. God's judgments are final. But fortunately, God also extends a great deal of grace when he pronounces judgment. And we will see that in these upcoming verses. 
So Lot in verse 14 goes to his sons, his son, future son-in-laws or his son-in-laws as they would say. And, and this is an idea of what kind of man Lot had become because in this, what scripture says, his son-in-laws think he's kidding. You think Lot's been teaching these guys about God? Do you think he's told him the stories about Abraham? Do you think he's told him all the stories of what's happened in the past? Do you think he's communicated to them what God expects of people? Probably not because they're rejecting it as if he is joking. There was no joke intended. Lot had not been doing what Lot should have been doing. And then verses 16 through 22, the reluctant exit. Have you ever been involved with something that you liked so much you didn't want to get out of it even if you knew it was wrong? How many of you would be willing to admit that? That we get involved with things that we know aren't necessarily right or are just flat out wrong, and yet we enjoy them so much we don't want to get out of them, even though we know we're not supposed to be there. In the interaction with Abraham, Abraham escorts his guests towards the tent, towards the city as they leave. We see Lot and family here having to be forcibly led out of the city. The angels grab them by the hand, literally dragging them out. How many of you have had to drag your children out of somewhere? Usually it's right around at the... Uh, at the Kroger store away from the candy bar aisle. You know, they put that stuff there for a reason, right? Not because it's convenient for you, but because it drives the kids crazy, and the only thing you want to do is get out of the store. The angels, by the hand, take Lot, his wife, and his daughters, and forcibly lead them away from the city of, of, of Sodom. Maybe they were comfortable in their lifestyle. Maybe Lot liked being in the gate. Maybe Lot didn't want to lose the only two guys that were maybe willing to take his daughters off his hands. A lot of factors play into this, but the simple fact of the matter is the angels had to lead Lot and his family out of Sodom. They didn't want to leave. We've often heard stories about Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt. Verse 26, we see that. The angel said, don't do it. Don't look back. Don't do it as they were headed out. And in the process of, of this passage in verse 22, and Pastor Dan will tell more about Zor to, next week, Lot says, you guys, you know, God has granted me great grace and has saved me. Please extend me more and let me go to the city of Zor, a small little city. Let me go there because I'm not capable of making it to the mountains. So the angels say, okay, but get there because we're not going to destroy this city until you're there. That's God's grace. God extends grace to those that seek God's grace. If you're a believer and you've put your faith in Christ, and you need to experience God's grace in your life, there's only one place to get it, and that's from God himself. But in verse 26, Lot's wife looks back. Why? Why do you think she looked back? She looked back because, frankly, she probably liked the lifestyle. How many of you here are old enough to remember a TV program called Green Acres? Okay. I had a bunch of you going, I have no idea what this old guy's talking about. Green Acres was this goofy couple. Eddie Arnold was one of them and one of the Gabor sisters. And, and he, was, he, was a, he wanted to live in the country. 
And she was definitely Fifth Avenue, New York. And they moved there. And she constantly reminded him that they didn't do this on Fifth Avenue. She was the classic, I don't want to be here, but my husband's here kind of girl. And to the point where her coffee was so bad it would hold a spoon straight up and down when he put the spoon in it. She was horrible. The phone was out on a pole the whole nine yards. It's a possibility that she didn't want to leave her beloved Sodom. She didn't want to leave the city. You know, I'm reminded of looking at this passage that, frankly, this is the same concept that many of the Israelites had when they left Egypt so many years in the future from here. They said, why did you bring us out here to die? There's no water. There's no food. Look at you. Bring us out here to die. We're facing the Red Sea. The Red Sea's parted. Uh, you know, Moses strikes a rock. There's water. There's manna. God provides these people. Going, Boy, you know, we had leeks and onions and garlic and all that stuff back in Egypt. Oh, yeah, we were slaves, but we had it pretty good. The idea of staying where you are sometimes is a great enticement. And then it happens, verse 26. The little window there. God rains fire and brimstone down on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. I watched a program last night on YouTube from uh, holysites.com for what it's worth. And it was about the location of Sodom and Gomorrah. Where are they? For decades, people said, well, they're under the bottom of the Red Sea. Geographically, that just, or the Dead Sea, that just doesn't fit. This gentleman went out to a site where they believe it was, and in there they found archaeological, yeah. that's it, evidence, yeah, that they could prove where it was. They found structures that looked like buildings. They found in a valley, they found 1.5 million graves, not just like Vesuvius where they're buried in ash, but literally dug graves. They found limestone that had been exposed to heat, which becomes calcium sulfate, a completely different compound when exposed to great heat. All through the area, nothing grows, desolate. They found layers of ash and charcoal in the rock. And then most interestingly, they found these little round, about, an inch, about the size of a golf ball, orbs, of sulfur. The difference is this sulfur is white. This sulfur is 90 to 100 percent pure. The rest of the sulfur in the world is about 50 to 60 percent and it's green. The neat thing about this stuff is you can set it on fire with a match and it burns blue. Showed a picture of it burning and melting down the side of the rock with a match. Struck a match, lit it, the rock burnt. Only place it's found is in this location, in Gomorrah. And in the valley between the two, no ash, no charcoal, no sulfur balls. God, from heaven, just like Scripture says, sent fire and brimstone. Brimstone is often, often equated to sulfur. Sent it and destroyed the city of Sodom and made the entire area desolate. Why? Because he eradicated at that time the sin of homosexuality, the hatred of the people, and the wickedness that dominated that area. Okay? God judged the wickedness of the men and the city. Well, it's not fair. It is completely fair. It is completely fair. When God judges sin, it is absolutely fair. You may not like it. 
You may say, this doesn't sound like the God that I know. This is like the kind and loving God that I know. Let me tell you what about our kind and loving God. Our kind and loving God hates sin. He judges sin, and he judges sinners. The great thing about our God is, is he makes a way for that sin to be forgiven and the sinner to become righteous. That's our God. Our God is not a vengeful God other than he avenges when his honor and his word is violated and his people don't do what they say and sin inhabits the world. And then God judges, but he always gives an opportunity for grace. Think of Noah. Noah built the ark in what, 100 years? You see this guy building his boat and he's telling you the story, hey, God's going God's to flood this place. And you ignore him for 100 years? Who ran out of grace? You were God. I'd say you ran right out of grace because God made it available to you. Abraham, verse 27 through 29, surveys the smoking and destroyed ruins of a once lush and fertile landscape. Scripture says that this area was probably much like the Garden of Eden, lush and fertile, grassy, great plains and great, great fruit and, and things to eat, full of wildlife. It was probably very much like the Garden of Eden, and God has just decimated it because of sin. He has wiped it clean, and even to this day, this area is as dry as you can imagine. In the layers of the rocks, they find layers of ash, like there had been a great fire stuck in the layers of the rock. And in between some of those, they find charcoal. Charcoal just doesn't naturally occur. Abraham standing and he saw the valley and he saw the smoke and he saw the destroyed Sodom all because of sin. So I ask you this morning, do you think God takes homosexuality serious? Would you say that God holds it as an alternative lifestyle? You say, oh, but Paul, that's clear back in the Old Testament. That's before the law. You're absolutely right. It is. And if it was against God's will back then, you can bet your bottom dollar it's against God's will today. Just that simple. I do not hate homosexuals. I do not hate lesbians, people of same sex. But I cannot endorse the sin they have. And while I'm at it, while I'm just offending all kinds of people and the people on YouTube are just going to freak out, if you are born a male or a female, that's because God intended for you to be that way. There's no options. You don't get to decide how old you are. How many of you in here that are, that are my age or older would say, boy, I'd like to declare myself to be 25 again? You don't get to claim your gender I got news for you. Your gender was stamped into you the day God created you in your mother's womb. And it doesn't change. You can, you can sew rabbit ears on a goat, but it doesn't make it a bunny rabbit. It makes it a really weird looking goat. And a rabbit with no ears. My friends, the sexual battle for the souls of our young people is at our front door. Teach them what God has said about same-sex marriages, same-sex relationship. Teach them that God has said, for a man shall leave his mother and father and shall take a woman to be his wife, and the two shall become one. And that one is a, a beautiful picture of the balance of the two together, operating together as one. 
It's a fabulous picture. Young people, ask your mom and dad if you dare. Is sex inside of marriage a good thing? Got awful quiet in here. Boy, it got awful quiet. But I would imagine your parents would tell you that inside the confines of marriage, sex is a beautiful thing. It brings balance. It brings order. It knits our hearts together. It allows us to enjoy each other in a way that God intended for us to enjoy each other. Inside the marriage relationship, sex is a wonderful thing. Outside the relationship of marriage, sex destroys, creates guilt, it creates resentment, it creates sin in your life. Homosexuality and all those things with it are all sins and abomination before God. God will not tolerate it much longer. My friends, are we that much different than Sodom was in those days? Speak where you need to speak. Be truthful when it needs to be truthful. But always season your words of truth with grace. And do not accept what the world has said about homosexuality because they have bought the lies of the devil. Let's pray. Father God, it's pretty heady stuff. It's um, uncomfortable. It is certainly unpopular. But what I know of you, you really don't care about what's popular. You really don't care about what's comfortable. What you care about is what's true and what's right, what's pure. Philippians tells us whatever things are pure, whatever things are right, whatever things are just, be there any virtue or praise, think on these things. Lord, allow us to purify our minds and our hearts. Allow us, if we have this issue in our life, if we are tempted by sex outside of relationship or we are tempted by homosexuality or lesbianism, that, Lord, we would deal with it with you, that we would get the help from those that know your word, that we may not be laden full of sin in a way that hinders us from knowing you better. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for all that you have done, for what you have given us and for what you have withheld. For certainly you have withheld things we deserve and have showered us with blessings we do not deserve. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.